Hey everybody and welcome to episode 97 of the Revive Yourself podcast. Here we go. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Have you got a health issue that just won't go away no matter what you try? Then welcome to the Revive Yourself podcast, where we reveal the secrets to long-lasting health by getting to the root cause of problems that no one else is talking about. So you can have more energy, clear skin, healthier hair, a leaner physique, more confidence, and most importantly, do the things you love and live the life you deserve. Here's your host, Ryan Martin. So everybody, welcome back to the Revive Yourself podcast. Hope you've had a good week. Hope everything's been going smoothly. I hope you're still staying on top of everything moving into 2019. And um, yeah, hope everything's well. Hope you're feeling good. Hope you're looking good. And if you're not, why not? Come on, get back on that saddle. Get in those lines. (laughs) But yeah, no, seriously, I hope you're all feeling well. I hope you're all good. And I hope you've got lots of good, healthy practices into place. Um, I know last week's episode really caused some... Uh, you know, people just have been getting in touch and they, they just uh, can't believe uh, what they've seen um, on Matt's film, Living Proof, and also the discussion we had and can't wait to get Matt back on. And um, a lot of people were really, really, uh, you know, thought it was a great episode. They were really impressed by by what, the interview and, and exactly what Matt was talking about and, um, and how he's uh, turned his life around. And when they watched the film, it's been a real eye-opener for them. And anyone who hasn't watched the film already www.livingproof.com for um, Matt Embry's story all about how he's not had a symptom in 22 years from multiple cirrhosis and everyone else that's followed his diet exactly the same um, and the reversals they've seen so very fascinating episode um, as always guys and girls head on over to www.reviveyourself.co for any um, articles on health all the other podcast episodes we've got you know this is not episode 97 we've got 97 others, um, phenomenal episodes, so really, really take a look into them. Um, some of the, uh, uh, oh yeah, and also, as I said before, if you are dealing with a health issue and you would like some one-to-one help, then give me a shout at ryan at reviveyourself.co, and we'll see if and how we can help you. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about this this week, well not this week, it's just come to prominence, um, that GlaxoSmithKline um, have teamed up with Red uh, with, with um, 23andMe and Ancestry, um, well, I've actually bought 23andMe all the DNA samples that they've had, so they can start to produce novel drugs in quotation marks and magic bullets. Really, it's just um, it's just them um, data collecting, um, see what they can do, how they can manipulate us, and uh, you know this DNA has actually been used already by the American government to arrest people. So people say, "Oh, what's the problem with that?" And have my DNA ever? research history <laughs> if you think the government's got your best interests at heart you really haven't done your research on history and very very dangerous why people don't want their records on the police uh, with they want them to stay with the police if they even get arrested and they, they get charged a lot of their their, their, their dna etc stays with them and you never know what could happen people say oh police don't plant stuff etc i'm not going to go mad on the conspiracy theories but if you've ever seen anything in history and seen how things have happened to people if you don't want your DNA and different things in their hands. So if you haven't yet have tested by 23andMe or Ancestry, I would recommend you do not get one. Um, and GlaxoSmithKline, who are actually owned by the church. Probably didn't know that. Um, quite. And then you start going down those rabbit holes. And it's quite interesting. Follow the money. 
you always see where it leads and the majority of the time it's not good places so i'll leave that with you there have a little think and have a little research with yourself about that um today's episode is with emma lane you've got her back on the show last time we talked with emma all about parasites and it was a great episode um this time we're going into SIBO, um, small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, uh, and I'm going to get her back shortly as well, hopefully to talk about telltale signs of disease in the face and in the body. But SIBO is something that's become more and more prevalent in today's society because of the way we're living and the modern lifestyle. So we're going to all different facts about how you can get it, um, how you can stop it, um, different tests, etc., what's best, and um, why living a holistic lifestyle and boosting your health is so important. Keeping your immune system nice and strong is so important. So without further ado, here is Emma. Enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. You've still been, you're still in the middle of your year of research, correct? Um, no, not so much research. I, I've, I've taken a year off um, from teaching, and I was supposed to finish writing the books, which hasn't happened because I've just enjoyed myself to be quite honest it's I haven't it's the first year I haven't taught for probably about 20 years um so I just I've taken you know some time out for myself to do what I want to do I've been to a lot more conferences and courses and things than I'd um normally do I've probably increased it by about 30 percent this year just because I could because of the time um so yeah it's more so not research per se but you know just being present with the industry updates and new information and research that's coming through um, but not actually researching myself okay so what have you what have you what have you found what have you, what that surprised you what yeah what is what have you found that you think oh that that's good well, I can use that oh god that's I'd need time to think about that is that a loaded question um yeah well it's a difficult one because um Obviously, I work in, you know, a lot of pathogen orientated um, work. So there's been quite a few developments on kind of the Lyme, co-infections, bacterial side. There's been quite a lot in regards to retrovirus development, i.e. more information. Um, there was some quite major shifts from Pimentel this year in regards to SIBO. Um, so, they, yeah, it's... It, it's a loaded question because there are certain areas where there has been shifts and changes, um, and then in other areas, not so much. But people are looking; it's almost like they're looking back at old traditional approaches, approaches, and kind of realizing, "Oh, wow, that actually works!" And this is the reason why we can now prove it through research or science. So it's yeah, it's just a challenging question for me to hammer down to give you a succinct answer if I'm honest yeah yeah I completely understand this another way I want to move on to see there's a few other things I want to talk to you about but just moving in, um, in reference to Lyme what what's changed with Lyme oh it's just um the recognition of there's a lot more um different species with it that it's not that Lyme's probably not the major player that things like Bartonella are um, so what we would consider more of the co-infections, because there's been more research, um, that's kind of where they're looking at it going, well, oh, we, you know, we actually thought it was 
you know, the Borrelia, uh, the Lyme, and now it's hmm, actually there's a lot of the co-infections are causing the exact same symptoms. Um, and that's purely because there's been more research and more recognition. Um, Just for people out there, the what, is, what is a co-infection? The co-infections are the other bacterial and viral aspects that you can that are associated when somebody has Lyme. It's very rare that somebody just gets a Borrelia infection, which is the Lyme. Um, so it could be, you know, frequently what you'll see is clients that have mycoplasma, uh, pneumonia, um, Epstein-Barr virus, um, Bartonella, Babesia. Um, you know, there's there's Yersinia. There's just lots of other. Um, infections, bacterial infections that have a similar reaction with, or the body has a similar reaction to them. Um, so it's not just now, oh, Borrelia is the problem. It's um, actually, you know, we need to take more awareness of the co-infections, which I've never understood actually, because I've always worked with whatever that person's got. That's what you work with because they, you know, it's all contributing to creating a health issue. Mm-hmm. Um but a lot of the research has always been around the Borrelia and, the, you know, the Lyme. Um, but it's just now, it's an advancing field. That That's yeah. what it is. And it's a, it's a tough field because, you know, the medical community, the allopathic community doesn't believe that there is uh, chronic Lyme issues. I can't believe that. Um, Still, it's amazing. Yeah, they, you know, they'll recognise acute, but the, the problem with that is um, they're always looking for the bullseye rash, and the majority of people don't even get a bullseye rash um, if they've been bitten by, you know, a vector. So it could be a tick, it could be a mosquito, it could be a sunfly, it could be, you know, it's just, it's a vector, basically. It's not mm-hmm. just it ticks which a lot of people think and you can you can get bitten at any time in the year you can pretty much now get Lyme i.e the Borrelia and in my opinion co-infections wherever you are in the world because it's been shown um, pretty much every country has incidences of Lyme Um, in certain obviously areas and countries we're more definitely at a, a more of a let's just say a higher problem we we have a higher degree of problem with it such as in the uk you know certain countries in europe like germany have big problems america etc australia so it's you know people think oh it's it's not a problem and yes it is Um, but again i think like we talked about before it's more in regards to the person's health and well-being as to how effective their immune system is able to respond is that, to an invading pathogen. Is that why those so, countries? Is that why those countries would have more because people in those countries are, are, are not as healthy? Couldn't say one hundred percent because you can. There's cases of Lyme co-infections, etc., all around the world. But I would say that um, our day-to-day choices on how we live and how healthy we are and the foods we eat and how we sleep etc will make a massive difference to whether you are more susceptible to having problems with these but ultimately you know anybody can get bitten um, and it's dependent on how their system reacts to that as to whether you know it's going to be a problem for them and because it doesn't (laughs) with these bacterial and viral aspects you can have a myriad of different symptoms. This is why the symptom picture is so diverse. Um, 
and some people can get more um, fatigue related issues. Some people can get more neurological related issues, um, you know, different system related. So cardiovascular or digestive. So it's very I think this is one of the reasons why the allopath uh, the allopathic community has a challenge with it because it is it doesn't meet kind of their nice little tidy box criteria of symptoms because it will migrate and show different kinds of infection you know different kinds of symptoms in people um, depending on how their body's responding to what they've got um, and obviously what bacteria co-infections etc they've got as well. Yeah, and so. Do you know um, Anthony Williams, the medical medium? I don't know him. No, I know of him. You know of him, yeah. He talks a lot about. Um, well, he talks a lot about. He thinks Epibarvirus is the main player in a lot of this. Um, oh yeah, the Epstein Barr virus is a a, a big. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's um, you see it continually on on the lab tests that I run on people to identify exactly what they've got, so we know exactly what we're doing to address it. Um, Epstein Barr comes up a lot um, because remember these these organisms. Once you've been um, in contact with them, they basically bury themselves deep within the cellular you know environment so anything can trigger them thereafter once you've been in contact with them it's like people that get cold sores from the herpes simplex virus um it's you know oftentimes that triggers and shows itself when they're extremely stressed therefore suppressing their immune system possibly eating you know a lot of foods are more orientated to producing the shift like chocolate and coffee and, and high levels of red meats etc so they're getting more of a certain amino acid in arginine um, where uh, that actually helps it express itself where ultimately if they reduce the arginine intake and increase the lysine intake that will actually help um, get rid of it kind yeah. of thing yeah, but you've is. got to look at the underlying causes of why are they stressed and why is their immune system um, suppressed yeah. at that point in time but it's that's what it does that you know these things sit like with the herpes simplex it sits within the nerves um, but the other viruses and bacteria, you know, they sit within your system wherever they want to hang out. So like the mycoplasma pneumonia likes to hang out in the lungs, for example, predominantly. It will hang out in other places. Um, so it will, like, you know, things can trigger it later on in life. Um, but it's something that you might have picked up, you know, when you were a teenager, for example, you mm -hmm. know. And it's the same thing with the Borrelia. Um, you know, you can pick that up, but it might not manifest itself until some kind of event in your life where you, you know, just as examples might be extremely stressed or you might have been involved in an accident or you're not eating very well. You know, the, there are triggers that generally um, create more of a problem. Um, Emma, how about, how about if people are actually getting healthier and then the immune system actually finds it and, and goes to war with it? Can that lead to it? Yeah, well, you can get more symptoms, definitely, yeah. You know, you, the whole thing with these kind of infections is you've got to get them out of the cell so that the immune system can actually do something about it. Mm -hmm. So it's about modulating the immune system and then addressing the actual um, infection. So, you know, it's it's a multifaceted approach when you're talking about these kind of things. Yeah. So how do people get it out of the cell? Yeah, I'm not going to get into that because ultimately you do need to be working with somebody that knows what they're doing because you can somebody can become very, very sick mm -hmm. um, if it's not done in a managed 
way. Okay. Um, so I, I just don't think it would be sensible to start talking about that. Okay, no worries. <laughs> yeah. No worries. I mean, I know homeopaths um, talk about viruses and they see it think it was the research shows that they can they talk about being able to destroy any virus apart from HIV which I think Chinese medicines has some great results with um do you do you use any homeopathic remedies do you go down that route I do when it's appropriate yeah I basically look at what is going to help the individual and uh, choose the appropriate tool out of my toolbox so yes homeopathics definitely come into that um, energetic medicine nutraceuticals infraceuticals herbals you know you name it basically it's, it's what is going to help the individual that's kind of the route that I take Perfect, perfect. So we're talking about a few different things there. I know we wanted to get onto SIBO today, which you you said there's been some um yeah, been some more movement with the research there. Just for I mean, we covered it I think a couple of times on the show. Uh, I'd like to see your, your take on it. I know you've got a course on it. Um so for people out there, just I mean, what is if you haven't heard about it, what is SIBO and um how does it affect the body? I mean, pretty much the reason I'd like to um, talk about it today is I, it is becoming more, uh, people are becoming more aware of it in the general public, mm-hmm. but a lot of the time um, they're unaware of why they've got the symptoms that they've got. And the symptoms can be very mild to right through to very severe. And oftentimes they just get the umbrella title of IBS. And IBS basically means we don't know what you've got. We've, um, you know, made sure that you haven't got any nasty inflammatory bowel diseases, etc. But ultimately, you have these symptoms, so therefore, we're just going to give you the title of IBS, and don't really then do anything to address it, other than try and deal with some of the symptoms, like, you know, antidiarrheal, antispasmodics, that kind of thing. When actually, you know, there is a causative factor for, you know, what the term in IBS, and. Um, what you right with IBS, you've also got to look at the parasite activity as well because Blastocystis hominis is also a big player, oftentimes with IBS. But SIBO, which is small intestine bacterial overgrowth, that's another big player um, in regards to what might be the kind of underlying factor of why you have got the symptoms that you've got you know so your IBS symptoms are things like bloating belching flatulence having pain spasms diarrhea or constipation or both actually so they're kind of the main recognized IBS symptoms but they're pretty much the symptoms that you'll get with a SIBO overgrowth but also things like GERD nausea food sitting in the stomach fatigue anxiety brain fog um, oftentimes people will lose weight, uh, but also they can put on weight as well. It depends what kind of bacteria they've got. Um, you can have more kind of food reactions, um, so it can lead to like increased inter- intestinal permeability. But pretty much what SIBO is, is it's, as I said, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. So it's an accumulation of bacteria in the small intestine. They don't have to be pathogenic. Oftentimes it's your normal flora i.e. The, the bacteria that's supposed to hang out in your large intestines. And it's pretty much it's, that bacteria has just moved somewhere it's not supposed to be. So the small intestines has a, a very low bacterial count. 
Um, obviously, otherwise, the bacteria would compete for the food that you're eating and interfere with the digestion and the absorption, um, which obviously this is what SIBO does, unfortunately, which is why it causes the symptoms that it does. Um, but the issue is the location of the bacteria, not actually necessarily the type of bacteria, because it can be normal commensal bacteria as well as pathogenic bacteria. Um, you know, so you can have your gram positive, um, like Enterococcus species, you can have your gram negative, things like your Escherichia coli, your Klebsiella, your Proteus um, species. Um, then you've got your Archaea, which are a, they're not a bacteria per se. Um, it's with the the right, the group is called Methanobrevibacter, and these are the ones that produce methane. So with your small intestine bacterial overgrowth, you produce gas. That's pretty, but it's pretty much what the bacteria does, and that's its job. That's why it does that. But it's just that the bacteria is somewhere else, and your small intestines is not designed to accommodate high levels of gas from the food that is being broken down by the bacteria. So the bacteria is still doing its normal job it's just the environment the small intestines is not going to accommodate it very well and therefore you'll get symptoms um, so with the gases you produce hydrogen from your normal bacteria and you produce methane from your methanobrevibacter uh, smithi and as i said they're not bacteria they're they're called archaea and they're a single-celled organism that lack a nucleus and you pretty much find these virtually all places where there's an anaerobic degradation, um, breakdown in like organic compounds. Um, so it's the gas production can cause a lot of discomfort with bloating. It can increase flatulence, burping, uh, changes in bowel movements. But you can get a myriad of symptoms throughout the body as well. So it can because of the endotoxins, the byproducts that they produce, those endotoxins can go throughout the body. So therefore, um, you can get a myriad of symptoms as well, right from musculoskeletal aches and pains, headaches, fatigue, um, it just effects on sleep, hormonal cycles, etc. So, it, you know, it can be a big problem. And it's, what I'd like to do is just draw people's attention to it in the general public um, that this can be one of the causes of why they've been diagnosed or given the title of IBS. And you can be proactive about it and you can affect and change the symptoms that you're experiencing, primarily through management of diet, meal spacing, stress management, etc. Also, you've got to go about obviously addressing the bacteria itself and getting rid of it and then being aware that it's highly likely that you'll relapse. So you've got prevention as well of relapsing um, because you've got to address the main causative underlying factors of the SIBO as well. So it's it sounds quite complicated. It's not. I'm trying to explain it in a manner that people will grasp it and actually just have more of an idea. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 it does make sense. It, it, in that, you haven't, you mentioned a few things, especially the other bacteria in the gut. How about Giardia? Do you see, see that as a, as a big player? Giardia is a parasite. Giardia, um, yeah. And yes, Giardia can play into it, but it's not as big a player for IBS as the Blastocystis hominis and um, the SIBO. 
so Giardia will give you more bowel-related um, reactions, responses. Um, so you'll you'll have cycles of um, loose, really smelly, floaty stools because it affects a lot of the, it affects the bile where it hangs out at the junction um, with the gallbladder. Um, so it can be quite problematic and quite uncomfortable for people, but it's not. It's not what I'd call a, a big player in regards to the overall picture of IBS, but it can definitely be a player. Okay. So with all, with all this, um, Emma, so I'm guessing you, 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 do, you do tests to find out what's going on. But before you do tests, do you try and get people to a certain level of health and change their diet and their lifestyle around? Because would you find that if you just started testing people that are doing things that are wrong across the board, that you might get results that show symptoms and not the underlying root cause? Or would you do things like, would, if, would you say to someone, go and get tested straight away? Or would you say, look, let's try and get you to a certain level of health first, and then we can test you once you're there, because I want to get to, to know what's actually going on rather than just um, things that are, symptoms that are coming up? It varies um, on the individual and what their story is and the, the timeline history, um, how badly they are suffering from symptoms. So there's a lot of variables that go into a decision process for me as to whether I'm going to test straight away or whether I'm going to wait to test. Um, so I, can't, I haven't got a kind of linear approach that mm -hmm. I use all the time. It, it's quite variable. Yeah, I can understand. Yeah, it's, it's but definitely before you start, one thing I will say mm -hmm. is before you start actually treating anything, you have to increase a person's uh, well-being platform, which is it's one of the things we talked about last time, if I remember rightly. Yep. Um, you've got to build people's health and vitality up so they have more resources, more resilience, because as soon as you start killing anything, whether that be a gastrointestinal infection, whether it be you know bacterial based, whether it be fungal based, whether it be more of a parasite somewhere in the body, whether it be more viral or bacterial somewhere in the body, you, you've got to increase their overall health and well-being and get them much more balanced out before you actually start treating anything. Because as soon as you treat something their resources are going to be redirected to the areas of the body that are more in need. So that means that they will have less energy, they will not feel as well, they will not have as many resources to draw upon. Um, so you've got to increase that before. You know, a lot of practitioners and people think, oh, you know, I've got a parasite, I've got to kill it and don't do anything to address the underlying factors of why the parasite had the opportunity to hang out in them in the first place, mm -hmm. i.e. diet choices, sleep, you know, the lifestyle factors, level of stress, how they eat, cephalic response, all those kind of things have to be looked at and addressed first. Yeah, 100%. It, yeah. It's almost like most so people come to me, probably come to you as well, I say a lot of what the guys trying to do all these, all these different things and also and they're all gonna keep on working out and, and living a stressful lifestyle. I'm like at the moment your body hasn't even got enough energy to heal, let alone do all these things. And you want to start going into that. So it's very important to try and build someone's life force energy up first with through different things because as I said as you found and I'm sure many other people have, but if you if you think like if you if you keep on smashing a plate it becomes harder and harder to put it back together. So you need to mm -hmm. sort of like make that make them yeah, as strong as possible to go through it. So with with SIBO, you mentioned a few of the few of the symptoms, but for people out there, what would be some of the some of the sort of standout symptoms of SIBO? 
Well, as I've said, you know, it's it's oftentimes the bloating that builds up through the day. It's the the belching, the flatulence, um, the spasms and the pain, dull ache, pain in the abdominal area or spasms. Um, because they, they get a lot of visceral sensitivity. If you imagine the gases that they're producing that are pushing outwards onto the small intestines, you've got a lot of nerves in that area within, you know, within the gut. Um, you've got the enteric nervous system there. So you're getting a lot of neural feedback, or you should be. And so it can be very, very painful. Um, quite frequently, people will um, have changes in the bowel movements, and that can be loose diarrheal based it can be constipation it can go between the two nausea is quite a common one uh, the sense of food just sitting there not going anywhere fatigue anxiety there's a huge increase in anxiety with a lot of people that have SIBO just because of the bacterial effects and the endotoxins um, there'll be weight issues um, they tend to put weight on if they've got more of a methane based infection they tend to lose weight if they've got more of a hydrogen infection because of the um, diet that is the the best approach in regards in, in regards to managing symptoms, there is a substantial reduction in your starchy vegetables um, and starchy carbs. So most people will lose weight just with that. Some people have to say are very happy about that. Mm. <laughs> Some people not so much if they can't afford to lose any weight. Um, so it's. And obviously, there's a lot of malabsorption issues as well with it because of how it upsets the absorption sites within the small intestines, as that's the area of the majority of your um, absorption. So anemia is quite a problem with it, especially like B12, iron, um, low ferritin. Don't tend to have problems with folic acid. Interestingly, um, with folic acid, the SIBO bacteria tends to actually increase the production of folic acid and also kind of uh, K1 as well. So it's, um, you've, you know, there's a lot of vitamin, mineral malabsorption. Oftentimes they can actually get things like stratoria. Um, so fatty stools, stools that float that are light colored because the SIBO will um, deconjugate the bile. So therefore you can't break down, absorb the fat um, effectively. So that obviously then leads to vitamin A, D and E um, deficiencies your fat soluble vitamins and like omega-3 deficiency so frequently because of the endotoxins there already is a systemic inflammatory issue that's going on when they've had it chronically um it can forget you know it can um it can also affect the protein absorption um as i said already definitely one of the problems is increased intestinal permeability um and then you've got a lot of coexisting conditions that go with it so people frequently have issues with like fructose malabsorption lactose problems intolerance etc um gallstone issues it's it's kind of one of those things that just has this far reaching effect Mm -hmm. and some people can have really mild symptoms and some people can be so severe that this just can't get out of bed they can't function very well um so you know, you've got to manage it properly and you've got to address what are the underlying causes of it um, because it can also lead to other more serious problems, for example. Um, just if it's an ongoing infection that they're not actually addressing or doing anything with, it can open you up for things like um, 
diabetes and um, cancers and um, digestive issues, um, even parking, you know, things like Parkinson's, mast cell activation syndrome, Lyme, obviously, um, other infections. Um, you frequently don't just get SIBO in its own. You frequently get some kind of parasite and fungal infection going on as well. You can also get CIFO, which is um, small intestine fungal overgrowth. So it's 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 more of a if you don't do something to address it, it becomes more and more problematic. So there's risk factors to causing other um, health problems, diseases, if you like, or they are the possible causes of the SIBO. So it, it kind of goes back and forth as well. Um, you know, and there's often you get coexisting conditions as well. Like hypothyroid is a common one um, that you get with somebody that's had chronic SIBO for a long time. Um, metabolic issues, you know, blood sugar, diabetes, that kind of thing. So it, you know, it can be it can be problematic, and this is why I, I'd like to draw more attention to it. Um, so that people can take more responsibility and control of the health journey. Yeah, I mean, you've literally, people were sitting in their jaw on the floor going, oh my God, like, there's a there's just reeled off like a million things that could affect and it would go into things like cancer, etc. So for people out there that are like, oh my God, how do I, well, first of all, like, how do I test for this and, and how do we, and how do we start to rectify this? Yeah, so what I'd say, first of all, because to do the testing, you need to be working with a practitioner. The the test, it's a breath test um, that you do, which, because the bacteria produces gases, those gases um, from a small intestine are absorbed through the tissue into the lungs, and you are measuring the gases as you're blowing out. This is why it's a breath test. Um, and in order to utilize that test you you do need to find a practitioner that knows what they're doing with SIBO um you can obviously go to your doctor I have to say and this is not a negative reflection on GPs they just don't have the time to read a lot of the research and SIBO although it has been known about since the 60s it's this is not a new thing SIBO has been recognized since the 1960s in the medical community it's just not been seen as a of an importance of a player in problems that they're seeing in people. So with GPs, they oftentimes actually don't know what SIBO is. Um, obviously, if the GP will refer you to a gastrointestinal specialist consultant, they will, and they will be able to refer you for the appropriate tests. But there's a lot of naturopaths, a lot of functional medicine practitioners that also um, have the access to the tests and that will probably... Um, have a much better idea of how to guide you and how to help you. Um, so the testing, as I say, is a breath test um, that's done. And what I would say is look more so at your symptoms because how you manage your symptoms is through your diet. And bacteria, in order to proliferate, whether they are good bacteria or bad bacteria, and remember SIBO can be either or, it likes to chomp down on foods that have got fiber in them and sugars. So if you take a look at your diet, and it's not just the non-healthy 
form of sugars that you're looking at, but it's also um, things like your cruciferous vegetables, for example, your fruits, um, things like apples and pears and blackberries um, will create quite strong symptom response from SIBO. So it's more about utilizing a diet that is going to feed you, but is not going to overly feed the bacteria because bacteria's job is ultimately to break down the carbohydrates. That is their job. Um, and they will um, ferment those carbohydrates, which is what produces, obviously, the gases. So the bloating, which can be extremely painful. Okay. So pretty much what you're looking at is, or remember, actually, the main thing to remember is that SIBO causes carbohydrate malabsorption. And it's because the bacteria is in part, it's in a part of the intestine that's not designed for them. The bacteria eats the food that you've eaten. So especially your carbohydrates, remember. So what you get is small intestinal fermentation that will lead to the carbohydrate malabsorption. Plus also the bacteria will damage the small intestine physical structure. So the brush borders, etc. that affects the function of the small intestine. Um, so that leads to maldigestion, malabsorption. So it's kind of this vicious cycle. Um, so with the foods, pretty much what you're trying to do is limit what we would generally recognize as healthy foods. So your fermented foods, things that like sauerkraut, um, your cabbage, um, as in normal cabbage, sprouts, your cruciferous vegetables, those kind of things. Um, even things like asparagus, anything that's fibrous, so like the spear, um, is not as fibrous as the stem of asparagus. Your prebiotic vegetables like your artichokes and um, your fennel and things like that are definitely not a good idea with SIBO because obviously prebiotics feed the bacteria. So you've, you've got to reduce down on certain foods. Things like potatoes are definitely not a good idea in your root vegetables. You can get away with small amounts of things like parsnips and carrots. Um, but there's certain ones, as I say, like your potatoes and swede um, that they don't do well on. Definitely things like onions and garlic are big no-nos um, because, again, they're prebiotics and they really like down you know, like to chomp down on those allium-based um, veg. Um, so it's it's more, you know, play about with your diet first and notice what happens with your symptoms. And if your symptoms reduce, then that is a good indicator that, yeah, you've got a bacterial overgrowth. With that, it would then be, you know, find somebody that knows what they're doing that can guide you through the process because there is different dietary approaches that work for people. So low FODMAP, specific carbohydrate diet, Mount Sinai diet, um, the biphasic. So there's there's lots of different diets. I preferentially use the biphasic because I've trained with both uh, Jacoby and uh, Dr. Jacoby and Dr. Cybecker and Dr. Pimentel. And they've they've come up basically with a more of a specific SIBO diet that's then being put into a two-phase approach, which is how I've always worked with other pathogens. So it, it kind of sits well with me, and I, I see that it works very well for other people as well. Um, so I tend to use the biphasic, um, which pretty much what you've got is a phase one, which is a reduced repair phase. So it's where you take the foods 
down so it supports you um, but it's not feeding the bacteria and that gives also the digestive tracts time to settle down and repair so you, you support that kind of the, the, that process and then your phase two is remove and restore so you've got more variety of foods in there which is it's mm, the best analogy i can give you is it's like a carrot on a stick in that there's more food so the bacteria are going oh great excellent this is you know what we want but with that it keeps them from hiding behind the biofilms and things um, so that you can then start chucking, whether it's herbal antibiotics or it's antibiotics, there's different approaches for it to address it. Um, and you, you need to have a little bit more of a, as I say, a carrot on a stick to make sure that the bacteria is actually being, um, it, you know, the whatever you're using to reduce the numbers of the bacteria is being able, it's able to get to the bacteria. Um, so as I said, there's, there's three main approaches, which is herbal antibiotics, um, so things like berberine and allicin, etc. Um, then you've got your antibiotics. The most research and most effective um, one is rifaximin. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to get hold of in the UK because it's a red drug, which basically means your, GK, your GP can't prescribe it. It has to come from a um, consultant. Um Depend on what kind of overgrowth you've got, and you have to oftentimes double the rifaximin up with something like neomycin, another antibiotic at the same time. Um, and then there's also the elemental diet, which is a shake, a drink, which has all the nutritional components in it that you need to survive. Um, what was that last one, uh, Emma, sorry? Elemental diet. So the shake, is that it? Elemental diet? Yeah, it's a shake um, which has all the nutritional components that you need in it to survive. Um, but it uh, is absorbed in the first part of the small intestine, so the bacteria basically gets starved out. <clears throat> all three approaches have about the same success rate. Um, and people, everybody responds differently. So some people will do better with an elemental approach. Some people will do better with an antibiotic approach. Some people will do better with a herbal antibiotic approach. And it's it varies person to person based on how the bacteria respond. Remember, it's not just the individual. It's also the bacteria and how they respond and what bacteria you've got. So there's different herbs to use in regards to oh no that's not fair there are different herbs that are more effective against certain types of bacteria so if it's more hydrogen based you'll use different herbs to if they've got more of a methane dominance based overgrowth so it depends on what they've got and um it's not just a kind of one round approach oftentimes it can take people quite a long time to address SIBO specifically if they've had it for a, a longer period of time so if it's more of a chronic situation um, it will take you know possibly six months to a year plus to address it effectively and to um, work your way through the prevention of relapses um, whereas some people that have literally just had a food poisoning event just picked it up um you know they may well address it with one round of something um so it's, it's quite individual let's say um but one of the things actually um that we didn't talk about is the risk factors i.e what can actually create the opportunity mm -hmm. because bacteria will come from different places the food you eat you drink 
obviously we're covered in bacteria. We have different bacteria in different areas within the body. Um, so traveling, for example, being stressed, um, you know, there's lots of kind of reasons, if you like, or possibilities um, of how and where you can pick this up. Quite frequently, it's through a food poisoning event and they haven't got very good digestive function. Um, you know, we've got a lot of protective mechanisms against bacteria coming in. Um, so like if you've got appropriate levels of hydrochloric acid, if you're, pre if you're producing the appropriate levels of bile and enzymes, if your immune system's working properly, at a functional level, if the um, ureliocecal valve is working properly, pyloric valve, um, because oftentimes with SIBO, people have um, the the ureliocecal valve, for example, doesn't uh, function properly. And that's the junction between the small intestines and the large intestines. And what you can get is like a backflow from the bacteria in the large intestines into the small intestines. Specifically, that happens more times around people having poor digestion because they're chronically stressed. Um, or it can be that there's been some kind of um, surgery, abdominal surgery. So cesareans are often a causative factor or any kind of surgery because it can create adhesions and scar tissue that will affect the function and create blockages. Um, effects on something called the migrating motor complex is another problem. Um, so for ease of saying this, rather than saying migrating motor complex every time, I'll just say MMC. The MMC is responsible um, for cleaning out the bacteria, the debris, the toxins from your intestinal tract, specifically your stomach and your small intestines. And it only activates um, when there's no food in there, so at fasting. So your optimal period for your migrating motor complex is during the night. Um, and what you find is that people don't the people that don't appropriately meal space, they, they're eating too frequently, they're snacking all the time. They just don't get this cleansing wave happening at all through the day. And they eat quite late at night. And pretty much your digestive system, if there's anything in there that has calories in it or anything that is representative of calories, so... For example, you could drink a herbal tea, but if you added some stevia to it, your digestive system uh, would see that as food, even though it's, there's no calories per se from stevia. So if you have a tea but add milk to it, nut milk or normal milk, your body will perceive that as calories. If you are drinking a glass of wine at night, so you finished eating at seven, but you're having a couple of glasses of wine, your body perceives that as there's food in the stomach. So you, it will not activate the migrating motor complex. So therefore, you don't get this cleansing wave through the small intestines, the stomach, the small intestines to flush the bacteria from the food that you've eaten through the day, the toxins, the food particles that are still sat there. So it's the perfect environment to create the opportunity for that, uh, for a SIBO overgrowth. So yes, we have a lot of protections, but we also have a lot of lifestyle choices and behaviors that will have a negative effect on those protection mechanisms that we've got stress being one of the main ones um, because obviously as we know that affects overall digestive function um, but will actually shut off the migrating motor complex as well so ideally what you want to do is have a 12 hour overnight fast um, so if you're eating at seven uh, you don't want to be eating you know at seven at night you don't want to be eating or drinking anything that has calories in it 
um, until seven the next morning. So that it gives you the optimum 12 hour period to activate your migrating motor complex. And ideally through the day, because your stomach and your small intestines has got to empty, you've got to give yourself at least four hours between food in between eating through the day, ideally five hours because the migrating motor complex activates um, about every 90 minutes. So if your stomach's emptied out, that's your three hours, your small intestines, etc. You've got to give it another hour and a half, 90 minutes to activate. So this is why the four to five hours is a guideline. However, big warning here, which people do need to take um, account of, is your blood sugar takes precedence through the day. If you have not got good blood sugar balancing, you should not be aiming to eat every four to five hours. It should be more around the three hour marker. And you just make sure that you get your meal spacing, your overnight fast during the night, i.e. don't eat after seven o'clock, eight o'clock. As long as there's 12 hours, you are getting a good activation, theoretically, of your migrating motor complex, unless there is underlying vagal tone issues which unfortunately a lot of people have um, which have to be addressed um, to get it reactivated that's one of the key things to stop you relapsing um, when you do get rid of the bacteria itself you've still got to address the underlying causes and a migrating mode complex that doesn't work is um, one of the agreed main causative factors of SIBO um, as well as altered anatomy which we touched on with the you know, if you've got any kind of adhesions or strictures, tumours, any kind of blockage, blocked areas, um, you know, so you can get pockets. Um, if you've got diverticuli in your small intestine, you can get blind loops. If there's a problem with the ileocecal valve, um, if there's any fistulas, so, you know, you can get fistulas from the large intestine to the small intestine. So, again, that's another way of getting back migration. Um, so, sorry, I went off on a bit of a... No, it's big great. loop there on you. <laughs> no, no, it's great. No, um, just with the migrating motor complex at night. Um, if someone, if they're working long hours and they have to eat quite late at night, if they then went on a, on a twelve to sixteen hour fast, uh, just from from say twelve o'clock until to one or two in the next day, would that still have benefit, or is it have yeah. to be when you're sleeping? No, no, no. You don't have to be sleeping. No, it's it's purely in a fasting state, i.e. there's no food in there. That's the only time it will activate. If there's food in there, you're activating your peristalsis, so you're turning the digestion on. So it's basically no food or anything that has calories in it. So bone broths, actually bone broths for SIBO aren't very good um, because they like the collagen that you get in the bone broth. So people with SIBO have to do meat broths rather than bone broths. Um, but, yeah, if they're... Basically, if a person isn't eating for a period of time, they're fasting, then yes, your migrating mode complex will be activating. Theoretically, it depends if there are, as I said, other issues going on with like the vagal nerve, etc. Okay, so so we'll get onto that, the vagal nerve. But um, we've we've just to clear this up. You said nothing but calories in. How about lemon water? Calories? Yeah, yeah. The body will perceive that as is. Um, there is nutrition there. Yes. Okay, and so with the herbal teas, it's generally, um, the actual tea bags are fine, but well, it depends what's in it. So if you've got, for example, sort yeah. of these, her, all these pucker teas, for example, have different things like ginger and orange flavouring, etc. in them, would that switch it off? It's more so if there's more, um, your fruit teas don't work very well, but things like rooibos, chamomile, green tea, rooib uh, I've said rooibos, 
Um, you can do those because there's not. Um, it's not overly problematic. It's not a, a dose that will actually activate the system. But if you get like the fruit teas that have had sugars to them and um, other kind of flavor enhancers, etc., then yes, that will have an effect. So you could drink black coffee, for example. But if you add anything to the black coffee, like MCT, then no. Okay, and so I mean, this is why intermittent fasting generally is another benefit of intermittent fasting to let these to let the body start to heal itself at a cellular level to clear house. Yeah. It right. It depends what your definition of intermittent fasting is because well, I'm not a massive fan of fasting. Um, intermittent fasting, if you're talking about having periods of time where you're letting the system rest, so such as a 12-hour overnight fast yeah and you leave in four to five hours through the day then yes if if that's your definition of intermittent fasting yeah. then i can go with that yeah but generally, if it's generally more so like the five two approach no no um, not big, not or, big fan of that. yeah that kind of thing then i'm not such a fan of that because it creates a lot of hormonal stress and digestive stress and metabolic stress mm-hmm. um so it is as i said earlier the key thing is if you can, if your blood sugar levels are balanced and there's no problems with fatigue, um, dizziness, lack of cognition, thought process, um, etc., um, nausea, none of those things are happening to you, then great. But if they are, you need to eat. Your body is telling you that it needs support and help and it needs energy coming in. Mm-hmm. 100%. I think it's... It's a, it's a funny one. When you get to a certain level of health, once you, a, a majority of people I know and speak to and, and do this in different practitioners, etc., when they give their body time off from food, that's when their mind's at its clearest, that's when they feel actually most alert. Um, you know, they're not the, they're not the um, lazy overeater, they're like the, their, their body's at a state where it can function it's not it's not you know when people when you eat your body's got to break down that food and it's got to go into time to start the digestion that food um so it's once you get to that certain level of health i find i don't know if you do when i'm sort of empty i feel a lot clearer uh do you get that at all yeah i mean everybody responds differently and you you know it's always about the individual mm-hmm. and what works for them um and definitely Yes, it's it's if as I say, if your blood sugar's balanced and your body's getting what it needs nutritionally, um, and you are supportive of your body, you you know your stress is balanced, etc. You're getting good quality sleep. Then yeah, when your body's not having to transfer energy into the digestive tract to break food down because you've you constantly got food in there, then that energy is going to be available for you to use in other systems. So yeah, you know in regards to thinking straight, having more clear thoughts, having more energy to do activities, most definitely. It's because that, that energy is not being constantly directed to break down this stuff that's sitting there. And oftentimes the stuff that people choose to eat is not exactly nutritionally benefiting or supporting them. It's, you know, it's it's hard work kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to constantly deal with that. Um, so... It, yes, you know, I yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, in the a lot of the time, yes, you will feel better if you are creating that balance and that respite 
um, from overloading your system, most mm -hmm. definitely. Cool. And this, you touched on uh, the vag you said it's vagal nerve. What can happen with the vagal nerve? <laughs> Is it a big one? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I could do a whole day on the vagal nerve. Okay. Um, right, very quickly, your vagal nerve is important because it's the one that is the overall controlling specifically in regards to your digestive function. What you have to think about is what affects the vagal tone. So just like with your muscles, your muscle is in better health when it has good tone your vagus nerve has to be appropriately um worked in mm -hmm. the appropriate manner in order to create good vagal tone so things like meal spacing as we just discussed will help with the vagal tone meditation will help with vagal tone um cold thermostatic changes so swimming in the sea having Three minutes at the end of your shower of cold water blasting will mm -hmm. help stimulate the vagal tone. Um, breathing, deep diaphragmatic breathing, uh, timed breathing. Um, what else? Um, mm -mm -mm. Oh, I'm trying, there's so many things that you can do for vagal tone. Mm -hmm. um, things like Tai Chi, the appropriate yeah, yoga choices kind of thing. Mm -hmm stimulating the parasympathetic side of the nervous system um so heart rate variability is a, a good indicator of vagal tone um the more time you are stimulating a parasympathetic parasympathetic shift you're getting more vagal tone stimulation so there's lots of activities and things that you can do to support your vagal tone which overall then will support your digestive function but your overall health and well-being um it makes a massive difference to people's um how they feel um, when they are paying attention and supporting the vagus nerve um, by appropriately using activities and making choices that support increasing tone. Cool. And the, the, the one that you said before, it's like the arterial... Um, there again, sorry? And I was going to say, it's like um, uh, Paul Chuck goes into it as well. He's talking about stimulating that, that sort of like the whole system of, of nerves that we've got... Um, Underneath, it's like um, lots of people have got a very weak autonomic nervous system because um, we're, we're in temperature-controlled environments a lot. And as you said there, going into that cold showers or deep in the sea, all these things really do help. So they build immunity, but they help that um, yeah vagal nerve, which is which is huge for people. So just for just for um, just for I mean, have you, have you got a go, Emma? Are you tip for time? I'm okay for about another five minutes. Okay, so then perfect. I've got a meeting. <laughs> perfect, so. perfect. So for people out there, just to, just to wrap up, then she's so gone through quite a lot here. I mean, it's quite a lot. What I mean, what of what would you like to end with? What would you say to people that, are, that are think they might have SIBO? Go and get tested, but then what? Yeah, you no, go. No, as ahead. I said, basically, um, play about with your diet. Mm -hmm. Take out um, for you know five six days. Take out the really fibrous vegetables, cut your fruit intake right down mm -hmm. and ideally cut it out for those five days. You know, some lemon, limes, that kind of thing, a few berries, and I, and I mean a few berries, not like a tub of berries. I'm talking kind of, you know, 10, 12 berries. Um, but avoiding your vegetables which are quite starchy, that are fibrousy, like your asparagus, your Brussels sprouts, Things like, you know, um, 
your courgettes, um, green beans, garlic and onions, definitely. Um, to take out things like artichokes, so asparagus, just basically broccoli. all veg, <laughs> all, no, gr- all, all, gr- veg. all green veg. <laughs> no, no, yeah. not, not quite, but the more cruciferous ones. But yeah, let me yeah. do it this way. Let me give you a list of the vegetables that um, are more uh, appropriate in regards to SIBO. Go ahead. Um, but it depends also if they've got any IgG food sensitivities mm-hmm. that that food might be a problem to them. Because if they have got SIBO, they're more likely to have intestinal permeabilities, which increases the likelihood of them having more food sensitivities. So the ones that people tend to do well on, so you're just doing an experiment, remember, for a five days or so, taking out the foods that are more likely to cause the symptom presentation, which is the bloating, the gas, the changes in the bowel movements, uh, the pain, because you're taking out the foods which are going to increase the the gas production. So things like bamboo shoots, bok choy, carrots, chives rather than your onions, for example, cucumber, aubergine, um, ginger, kale, lettuce, um, olives, your sweet peppers, bell peppers, um, things like rocket, uh, tomato, sunflower seeds, those kind of things. So if you aim for more of those for five days and just notice and keep notes, so write down somewhere the difference in your symptoms. Do your bowel movements get better? Do you have, do you have less bloating? Do you have less discomfort? Is there less flatulence? So obviously people get different symptoms and they won't get all of those symptoms. So you, you've got to look at um, what symptoms are you getting that you'd rather not be getting and then look at whether those symptoms reduce when you take the foods that are more causative for the increasing gas because the bacteria break it down. When you take those out, do your symptoms change are you less fatigued can you sleep better have you got less anxiety less brain fog so i do that first and then if you find actually yeah that it has made quite a bit you know it has made a difference so there's quite a high likelihood that i have got this then that's when you would look for an appropriate practitioner that has a training um or you you could attend i as you mentioned earlier i do teach um a cyber course um, which you will find the details of that on the Integrative Health website, Integrative Health Education. So that's uh, www.integrativehealth.co.uk. Um, the one class that I'm teaching in the UK is in February, I think. And I'm also teaching one in St. Louis in America. I think that's February as well, actually. Um, so you could come along to that it's a two-day course um there is a lot of information so if you are interested in doing the work yourself or meeting other practice you know meeting practitioners that can also guide you or you you know or you can work with them kind of thing then there's that option but ultimately find somebody that has got experience you need somebody that has that has a lot of experience with SIBO in order for you to be effectively able to address it it's a multifaceted problem. Um, so you have to look at a lot of other things as well. It's not just the bacteria um, because of the different systems it affects. Um, so with that, you know, find somebody that can help direct you. 
and they will be able to tell you in regards to what you need to do for testing, what you need to do in regards to management, what you need to do for prokinetics, um, address the, the other problems that it may have created and contributed to, etc. Cool. And just for, for most people out there, I mean, if they've got something like this, dropping out refined foods, processed foods, sugars, alcohol, things like that, they're going to they're see a, a big improvement anyway. Yes. Thank you for saying that because I'd assumed that people would have done that first, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which, as we know, is not the case. Um, so, yes, you need to take out, um, obviously, all the processed foods and especially the foods, remember, that are high in sugar. So definitely sugars, um, alcohol, grains, dairy, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's like it's one of those things, and this is yeah. And that's why a lot of people, for a lot of people out there, for a lot of people, it's the same with most. I find most, for, I'd say yeah, majority of people, a holistic approach is going to go a long, long way to getting them very, very healthy. Now, for some people out there, have got uh, as I said before. If Emma doesn't agree, that's fair enough. I don't know if she, maybe she does. Maybe she doesn't. She should try me in a minute. But for people out there that this has been going, what starts out as a little chronic issue then turns into a deep lying chronic issue, which can go into disease. That's when you probably need to. If you haven't started already, holistic approach and go deeper. But for the majority of people out there. Following a holistic approach is going to go a long way to helping them uh, get their self on the right track. Do you agree? Yes. Yeah. You, you've ultimately how you look at it is um, whatever you are experiencing in regards to your physical, mental, and emotional health, you have created it by the choices that you've made on a day-to-day basis. So if you want to keep experiencing the same symptoms and problems then keep doing what you've always done if you want to experience something different you have to change what you're doing to create a different experience awesome emma thank you very very much um so two sites you've got integratedhealth.co.uk uh, you've also is it PCIP is that your is that your website as well yeah the the one for parasite testing we don't do SIBO testing uh, we do parasite fungal and bacterial testing that is parasitetesting.co.uk mm-hmm. um, if people are interested in looking at things that they can use to help with SIBO and with digestion and in general then there's holistics online.com mm-hmm. yep. um, because we there's a whole antipathogen section on there that uh, splits down into parasites fungi SIBO SIBO support probiotics etc um, so yeah you know the, there is there are things that you can use to help support you as well in regards to digestion bowel movements that kind of thing when you've got SIBO awesome um, yeah and if anybody uh, is interested in working with me, I do have a waiting list. But my client website is energize with a Z, mindbody.com. Um, so E N E R G I Z E, uh, mindbody.com. Um, but as you know, I specialize more in the pathogen side of things and then the related um, effects that that can cause. So, you know, digestive, hormonal um, kind of things, neuro- neurological. Perfect. And I do want to get you back on to talk about the um, tales of disease in the body and, and the facial expressions as well. It'd be great, but we'll do that at a later date. But thank you very, very much um, for coming on today. No worries. It was great. Thank you very much. All right. Awesome.
So that was Emma Late, all about SIBO. I uh, can't wait to get her back on as well, you know, uh, talk about more more um, interesting topics. She's a wealth of knowledge and um, definitely someone that needs to be listened to. We need to get her out and her, her wisdom out to more and more people. SIBO, uh, as you said, it's it's it can be complicated and it can be simple depending on what's going on with a person. And this is why it's so important to live within those healthy parameters and you know I always say to people it's not what you're doing every now and again it's what you're doing all the time and having good quality food not being overly stressed exercising like detoxification if not daily weekly uh, cleansing your body staying away from refined processed foods um, just really refined sugars limiting your alcohol intake increasing your water getting good sleep and good rest staying away from electromagnetic frequencies as much as possible or protecting yourself switching off your wi-fi getting out in the sun and getting away from blue light at night so all these things are really really important so you know great episode with emma uh, integrativehealth.com as well as her website and lots lots to talk about um yeah, so fascinating. Um, and I know you guys get a lot from that. Anyone you know who's who's been suffering with SIBO, you think they might have SIBO, you know, work with, with her or at least send them the episode, let them listen to this and get, get her in touch with, with her or myself or anyone else that you know can help with them with this. Um, because it's something that a lot of people would struggle with because they don't understand what's going on, they don't understand what to avoid, they don't understand how to deal with gut issues, parasites, bacterial overgrowths um, and all other, all other things that can really impact your daily life. The real, real become a real, real problem. So yeah, definitely share this episode with anyone you know who may need it. Um, as always, guys and girls, head on over to www.reviveyourself.co. Lots of quality articles there, all about health. Got our shop there full of products, um, both supplements and also things like Aries Tech that block your electromagnetic frequencies. Um, we've got our Aquatair water filtration systems for the whole house. If you haven't got one of those, why not? It's very, very important. You're not only cooking your food. You're not only having showers in this so in, in this water. You know, you're cooking your food in it. You're brushing your teeth in it. You're washing your clothes in it. Um, it's something you're doing daily. It's one of the things that you can do to really um, impact your health on a daily basis, not have toxic water that's shown to have so many different drugs in it, um, as well as things like parasites, bacteria, fluoride, etc. So doing having a water supply, uh, clean water supply is very, very important for you and your family. Uh, we're also going to be having more on more stuff on our site very soon. Um, and um, yeah, as always, if you are dealing with a chronic health issue and you'd like my help, the best way to get in touch with me is to send me an email at ryan at reviveyourself.co and um, send me an email and we can book a free consultation to see if and how we can help you. If you want to see how we work, then go on our uh, our website, again, www.reviveyourself.co, and you can click the, click the testimonial link, and you'll see all the stories of people we've helped there and how we work. Otherwise, guys and girls, that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. Can't wait to get back on with next week with Dr. Dawn Ewing from Texas, all about holistic dentistry. So that's going to be a fun show. Otherwise, as always, stay happy, stay healthy, and I'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye. If you're struggling with gut issues, such as gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, indigestion, heartburn, and want to finally be able to eat the foods you love without the crippling after effects, then don't forget to head over to reviveyourself.co and pick up your free copy of The Healing Health Paradigm today.